Caleb Quay, it is such an honor to have you on the program, my brother. Thank you. You know, um, so Motown was underground, but I've talked mm-hmm. to enough of the cats, guys like, happens to be his birthday today, Stephen Ferroni, Alex oh, Litcherwood, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, uh, Ben E. King, a lot mm-hmm. of the blues masters. Again, we're not talking about Train, McCoy, Elvin, those cats, but right. or Motown, yeah. for that matter. It wasn't like Marvin Gaye was coming over, but the original blues masters were coming. Were You saw them live. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now they were playing intricate. They weren't necessarily playing 12 bar blues. Sometimes they go deeper in. They didn't have academic training. And I just wonder what you what you could talk about as it related to even though it may not have been academically right Mm -hmm. with those guys, it still felt really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boy, well, you know, um, I mean, we we loved it, and and uh, and Elton especially, um, he got to to with bluesology. They were backing some of these artists because they would come over and they would use a pickup band in England. Right, right. So we got to play with some of these people, and so that's where you kind of learned how they felt the music. You know, I re- I remember the first time John Lee Hooker came to England. So that would would be in 1964, I believe. Wow, wow. And I went to see him. I was just fresh out of school, and I went to see him at a club called the Flamingo. And a lot of a lot of the blues guys used to, you know, used to used to play there. And uh, the thing that really hit me so strongly was that John Lee Hooker, he actually dictated the rhythm to the band. So normally back in those days, when when a band would start a tune, the drummer would count it off. You know, one, two, three, boom, and in it. <laughs> they didn't do that with John Lee Hooker. John Lee <laughs> Hooker just started doing this shuffle beat on his guitar, and then the band came in. And I thought, this is the first time in my life I've ever seen a guitar player actually lead the band and dictate the rhythm. Absolutely. And the and the end result was it was like a tribal kind of experience because I look around and the whole club was packed out and everybody's bouncing up and down in time to this groove that John Lee Hooker had established. It was absolutely amazing. You know, the only other guy, yeah. sorry, the only no, other guy yeah. shortly after that that I saw do that was Hendrix. Hendrix did the same thing. The drummer did not count off the tune. Hendrix stated the rhythm. He laid it down, and then everybody came in. Caleb, the qu- <clears throat> this is so phenomenal because yeah. I think about – I love that word tribal. Anytime I go to a concert with, yeah. my, with my peers, I mean, obviously not symphonic, but yeah. uh, that is the word that I try to – I try to bring that vibe and energy mm-hmm. from the audience. Why do you think and, – and so the drum is always, to me – the instrument that creates descarga or the tribal feel. Yeah. But here yeah. you're talking about the front man, in this case, Hooker and Hendrix. Yeah. yeah. Why, yeah. why would, why was that tribal as opposed to the drummer, you know, in terms of them leading that and getting everybody swaying? Yeah. I think primarily, and especially leading back into those days, um, their approach to the instrument was different to guitar players in the UK. In what way? 
in, in the fact that, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a DNA thing. I think it's part of their African heritage. Absolutely. Their approach was, was uh, rhythmic. Totally. So therefore you get that groove going yep. with the front man who's yep. already feeling their own inner time field. That's right. And That's the rest right. of the band just picks it up and it goes higher and higher yep. and higher and higher. Yeah. Yeah. See those, those kind of players, they can get you going without a band. They can do it just with the guitar and the vocals. They can set <laughs> the whole thing up on the instrument. So even though it's a guitar, the way you play it, it be, there's drums and bass already in there because of this, the way they approach, you know, the rhythmic, rhythmic aspect of the, the way they approach their instrument. It's very different to European style guitar playing. It's fascinating. Um, was that something that you think is like Hooker and Hendrix? Are there other mm -hmm. cats? I'll tell you this right now. When I, I one of my interviews with Billy Cobham, he said mm -hmm. that <clears throat> there were only two cats that that had the courage to open and close for the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Most people, most people didn't want to close for them. You know, Zappa mm -hmm. didn't want to close for them. Sure. There were there were situations that like you know the Beacon Theater or something where you know uh, Mahavishnu yeah. opened everybody left the venue Cannibal Adderley sitting there the, the crowd's empty right there's two yeah. there's two bands Edgar yeah. Winter White Trash and then hmm. this is what I'm getting at the the other cat who would close and with audacity was Solo Taj Mahal Dobro uh -huh. and storytelling again yeah. driving that rhythm yeah. Yeah. All right. And that yeah. to me is what it's about. And I just wonder from your your lens, being that you've been on this earth a lot longer than myself. Uh -huh. um, how did we get away? Not again, there's part of it is the African ethos. There is yeah. that that driving rhythm. Sure. But how did we drift away from the responsibility of everybody in the band having their own inner time field? And what I mean by that is there's a lot, there's a sort of a concept today. And then pop music, again, it's genre related, but, yeah. oh, the drummer is going to hold it down or that's the rhythm section's job. That, mm -hmm. in my mind, is is ridiculous because I, I, no matter what the music, everybody should have their own inner time feel. Everybody yeah. should have that. And that allows, even in the pop setting, even in a four-minute tune, it allows yeah. the rhythm section to play melodically. But if people yeah. don't have their own inner time feel, then you rely on the rhythm section and the music becomes a little bit formulaic. And I just yeah. wonder, because, I mean, you played with all these guys who were angular. Everybody yeah. had their own inner time feel. Yeah. I, I just yeah. wonder in your mind why we, how we got away from that, because it is intoxicating. The music is intoxicating like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, for me, I think a lot of it has to do with the advancement of technology. Yeah. I think the digital, the digital age has really killed that. Because now you can just sample something, press a button, come up with something, you know, and it may sound good, but it's what it lacks is the um, soul, um, soul, it's Greece. soul, yeah. And, and yeah, and the chemistry between musicians, the the, exactly. the organic feel that just cannot be replicated by pushing a button. You know, a lot of people ask me, um, gosh. I mean, a lot, a lot of young students have asked me, how come, 
you know, the Tumbleweed, I'll just, you know, the Tumbleweed sure. Connection album yeah. from Elton John. How come it still sounds so good today? It's that stuff still stands up, you know? And I said, well, the only answer I can give you is we were playing our instruments live in the studio together. Exactly. No baffles. <laughs> No baffles, yeah. yeah very no. minimal, you know, there was no no fancy stuff, you know. There was no digital equipment. So it was that's it's the the the, the um uh it's the it was back in the organic world. It's organic music. Exactly. Yeah. And we can't go back to that. And also it's just, you know, with studio time yeah uh, being expensive and just the idea of trying to record to can you talk about those early sessions, tumbleweed, or even oh, the, yeah, in the sense of in the sense of like, also not just the fact that you guys were all hitting at the same time, so there's minimal overdubs. Right. But on top of that, the idea that like maybe I'm curious about how the engineer did the engineer have you guys come in, play, and then mic the room, because to me it was like right. the old school recordings, even though Motown was kind of underground, Chess Records. Yeah maybe one right and left overhead on the drums and maybe one for the kick drum, but there was a lot of leakage. Yeah. Did, can you just talk about the, how organic the miking was? Because that to me is yeah. on top of just the human element of it is why the music is just so alive. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, there's one thing it's interesting to you asking about the engineers because that's, um, that's something that's not talked about much these days in the, in the digital age. Totally. And back then, in the very in the in the different studios, um, engineers and I used to be one as well. So engineers, part of their job was not only knowing how the board works, but knowing the room. Exactly. That's that's a skill that's just like not happening these days because right. You know, when you press a button, you get whatever it, the machine gives you and you work with that. But back then, these guys were very skilled. So here's an interesting story. Um, uh, Atlantic Studios in New York. Yes. Back then. Yes. Uh, Bernard Purdy. They nailed his drums to the floor in the studio. And nobody was allowed to move those drums because the engineer knew that part of the room was where the drum sound is happening. <laughs> and under threat of death, nobody was allowed to move great, those drums. Man. That's a true story. I it's did. Story. I, I believe it. Yeah. So you had this is why when you listen to those records from back in, you know, back in those days there's this indigenous quality, you know, and in fact we used to we used to have competitions we buy a bunch of records me and and reg and some other guys we buy a bunch of records we sit down and listen to them and without reading the 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 the, the liner notes you know the the competition was okay we have to say okay what studio was it recorded in <laughs> who was the engineer who was the producer because all these guys had their styles that were associated with a particular studio. Wow. Uh, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I'm just curious if, if you were talking about um, stuff that was happening 
across the part where you were living, or are you talking about Atlantic or, or chess yeah. or the American? Yeah, all of it. Yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And um, so you know, you could tell EMI, but then you could tell, oh, that's Chess Records. Wow. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's Gary Starr engineering at Chess Records, or Glenn, that's or like. Short, uh, you know, like Glenn, Glenn Johns or, you know, that yeah, kind of, yeah, absolutely, exactly. yeah. yeah. So all of these guys, they had this, their production style was geared to the studio that they loved to work in. And so too with the engineers. So I'm curious about like, if you, any session from that time, because I know mm -hmm. like Ron Malo used to be the original chess engineer. Okay. And yeah. M-E-L-O and, uh, a drummer, David Kemper, used to tell me about these early sessions where he'd have everybody, all the musicians come in the room mm -hmm. and they'd play a tune and then he'd say, okay, the bass needs a little bit more here. And he'd yeah. address, he'd mic, he'd mic the, for the, for the players. He, you know, it wouldn't just be miking the room and then saying, here you go, record. Right, 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 we, right. See what was any, can you talk about some of the unsung, uh, an unsung engineer that maybe did that with, with, with the with the group of cats in the studio with you that that, that, um, that record still holds holds up well today if not better yeah well the engineer on that record was a guy called robin cable who was absolutely brilliant he he knew that room inside and out and he was real quick in setting stuff up um we would go in there you know and and he he already had a there was a designated drum booth you know and a, a spot where for the guitar etc you know and so he put us in there and he we would you know run stuff down and he would listen and um depending on what the you know uh what kind of concept audio concept that they were working with he would he would say hold on a minute i need to change the mic on whatever the bass mm, or, right. the guitar or whatever you know and so he, he'd made some minimal changes, you know, and then we're off to the races. You know, he, it, again, it's back to that thing. The engineer knew the room. And then, of course, he also knew the musicians. So after you've, after you've been in the, the studio a few times, the engineer gets familiar with, with your sound. Absolutely. You know. So it's all very, it, it, that's the whole, it's difficult to explain, but that's the whole organic side of I, it. You know, it's totally, you're doing a great job. I just, I, you know, not being a producer or engineer myself. Yeah. But I'm just curious, in today's world, that stuff has basically been eliminated for the most yeah, part. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, yeah. now explain, is it just a matter of cost prohibitive because you, in the sense of not miking the room to the musicians themselves and already having it set up, you is it just sort of a is it an efficiency issue? Why? Because that to me seems absolutely essential. Yet it's not really. Or do or do engineers have this sort of? And here's the other question: mm -hmm. Have younger cats just had hyper compressed beats crunched into their ears for the last mm -hmm. three decades, and they don't even know what space is? That I think is is the issue. Yeah, they don't know. The young guys just don't know. I know. It's weird, man. I list, All I listen to is records from this time period. And obviously, I have a big palette of large palette of music. But the grooves, I can feel the grooves. And it's just yeah. different than yeah. the electronic beats Absolutely. groove. It's weird. I can't exactly explain yeah. it. 
but yeah. I am coming up for the downstroke right in that pocket. And my peers, my daughters too, they can, I, they can hear it. They listen to a lot of, of the music sure. I listen to, but yeah. that's incredible. The hyper compression, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the digit is the quantite. That's the thing. Yeah. That was my question is like, did you, we talked about hooker and mm -hmm. Jimmy, you know, those guys actually, and McLaughlin as well, they yeah. were really good rhythm players. They oh, had yeah. great rhythm. And I wanted you to talk yeah. about from your own point of view, <clears throat> how you believe that developing solid, deep foundational rhythm helped mm -hmm. you grow your improvisational chops. Well, that's a good question. Um, I was always interested in rhythm. When I first started playing the guitar, um, I, you know, I was, I went, I actually started out as a rhythm player. Right. You know, totally. And, and uh, I, I guess I'm fortunate in that um, guitar was not my first instrument. When I was a kid, you know, I started playing piano when I was four. So I had some classical training in there. I understand piano. I love chords. Uh -huh. I love chords. So when I got to the guitar, you know, I was, by that time, I'm listening to people like Kenny Burrell and Wes Montgomery. And um, I love the sound of the chords. And also the whole idea of rhythm, because I was, you know, listening to African music and all this stuff, you know, it was very rhythm oriented, stuff from New Orleans and what have you. So uh, rhythm was there from the get-go. Um, and so then when, when I came to, to start, you know, busting out some lead licks and everything, it was all based around rhythm. You know, it wasn't just, you know, what they call shredding, you know. <laughs> well, the, the, here's the thing. I mean, to me, uh, I remember Terry Haggerty, dear friend from the Sons of Champlin. He, oh. he said, you know, like, I mean, the guy was playing like bebop. Yep. through rock changes or you know yep. what i mean he was just doing it sophisticated yep. but he, in today's world he goes there's most cats they are like playing at a very surface level they're 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 yep. they're, they're shredding but there's yep. no bottom to it so he exactly. has to just kind of play rhythm the most yep. intoxicating thing is listening to david t walker oh, or yeah. you know wawa watson yeah laying yep. that foundation even freddie yep. green from basie's band just because yeah yeah build that foundation and then it's like you're on top as a as an audience member you're on top yep. of a mountain that's right but if you don't that's start right. with the rhythm and you're just flailing around yeah then it just you're wanking it basically right yeah yeah and and it and if you don't understand rhythm on your instrument, then you don't know how you're limited, very limited in how to lock in with the drummer. Mm. Let's talk about that. I mean, Nigel Olson, let's mm -hmm. just talk about this cat. When did you first connect with him? I find his, his feel and his tone fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious about like, even in the, in the bluesology band, what were, who were some of these early, drummers that you played with that had sort of that the tendency to be able to um you know lock in with you and play melodically but still keep the groove well my main man that were in bluesology the drummer was a guy named pete gavin pete gavin gavin yeah he's not with us anymore but he left he, us yeah. yeah he was a great drummer but uh my main man from back in those days is roger pope talk about uh, these are not I, i'm loving these names because i'm not i'm i'm familiar with like uh 
John Heisman. Or, yeah, I knew John very well. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Um, and there's other cats that I'm sort of spacing on. Uh, please talk about Pope. I mean, I, 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 these drummers. There was no, there was no book, man. <laughs> like, right. You played. It didn't matter. Like the kick drum didn't need to line up with the bass. It was just, it was just like, as a yeah. group, you guys went yeah. into battle together. I just want you to talk about locking in with Pope. Yeah, well, Roger was great. We met. Uh, we first met. I first met him on a TV show. Uh, it was a big show back in England called Ready Steady Go. So I first met Roger in 1966, and he was playing with a band called the Soul Agents, which wow. was like an organ organ trio sure. group, you know. So very kind of Jimmy Smith or, or, or oriented, you know. But what they were doing, they were backing on this TV show. They were backing Buddy Guy. Uh -huh. The great blues guitar player. Of course, still doing it, man. Yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. And Roger, I was really impressed with Roger. Because now, now Roger, he, he grew up in a, in a, in a jazz background because his father was a jazz drummer. And so I'm listening to, to, to this band back in Buddy Guy. And Roger was one of the, back in those days, one of the few drummers in England that could do the Art Blakey shuffle. Really? Oh, yeah. He was a real serious, I mean. He was amazing. Yeah. He wow. could make the thing swing. I mean, really great. And so Roger and I were tied to the hip musically together for like 10 years. He was Hookfoot's drummer. He's the guy laying down the groove on Tumbleweed Connection. Oh, I love this. I yeah. love this. Roger was amazing. Nigel was good, but Nigel was more of a pop drummer. Definitely not a jazz drummer. I, no, I did. No, no, I no, did. No, no. I love his. I love his sense. Of, but I mean, he makes yeah. pop records feel good. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Roger can do it all. Roger was amazing. Is he still with us? No, he's not. He passed away in 2013. So there's a few more cats I want to get to. Just as far as like, it's always interesting to me. McLaughlin at, at a certain period of time was uh, riffing poetry in coffee houses with bands back in the '60s before he came to the states. Yeah, Auger yeah. was over there. Brian Auger yeah. played with Long John Baldry. I'm not sure if yeah, he was in the yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, what about these two cats? Um, uh, one is Jack Bruce. The other mm. is Graham Bond. <laughs> Because I just, I mean, dude, I'm talking like, this is a, I, I have been deep into the regional music of this country. I yeah. try to reach out, but man, you guys across the pond really were, I mean, you were doing, you weren't comping cats. I mean, you were influenced by people. Right. But then right. you were taking it into your own vernacular, it, which is exactly. what I love, man. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we were doing. Um, well, Jack Bruce, as everybody knows, was the bass player for Cream. Yeah, and he was playing upright with Les McCann when he first came over here. Yeah, Jack. You know, it's was, insane. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Jack was a great musician. You know, um, he had some classical training, but also, you know, jazz sensibility. So he crossed a lot of musical territory. Um, and originally was playing with Graham Bond, the Graham Bond organization. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, before Cream. So uh, Jack and Ginger Baker were playing in Graham's Graham Bond's band. Holy cow. And they came out of there and joined with Eric Clapton to 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 form Cream. Yeah. 
what would you describe? Because I just found this album. I don't think you're on it. Uh, Holy Magic, Graham Bond, and he passed away several a couple years after this. Yeah, <clears throat> but was was that music that? What was the music that uh, Graham and Jack and Ginger were playing? That was not Cream music. No, they were doing um, more blues, blues, jazz. You know. Um, there was some original music in there, but then there was also covers of uh, American blues tunes. Interesting. Yeah. High-heeled sneakers. They did a version of that. Tommy Tucker's high-heeled sneakers. You, so you guys were, were eating up the uh, Booker T and the MG stuff. Mm, did yeah, you, oh, yeah. You connected with Duck Dunn, though, quickly? I didn't. I unfortunately, I never got to meet them. I I always wanted to. What a character, man! You guys would have had a ball together. Yeah, I want to meet Steve Cropper to shake his hand because he was a huge influence on me. Well, I got his. I'm I'm good friends with Steve. I can definitely get you his get you his contact. You're you're, oh, that'd you're be the, great. Yeah, he's, he's on my bucket list. He's a beautiful cat, man. That's you great. know. <clears throat> I wanted you to talk. Being your dad was a jet was a jazz. Was he playing like? Um, Trad jazz? Was he a bebopper? What would you say he was in terms of his uh, style? Yeah, uh, yeah, he was a bebopper. He he was a multi-instrumentalist. He was a drummer and piano player and a vocalist. And when he was 16 years old, he was playing drums for Fats Waller. No way. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is, I have a, a 78... Uh, 78 collection that just fell the cover fell off and it's this great picture of Fats Waller I've been looking at it every day at work I cannot yeah. believe he was he was playing drums yeah yeah when Fats Waller came and toured Europe oh. um, my dad got the gig at 16 years old playing drums for Fats Waller so talk the one thing I want you to riff on because you had what was the best part of the education of being in a family band, like, or just being immersed in music? Because, you know, even when, I'm not sure when you actually got to the States, but still, it was just still basically North Texas and Berkeley. Not mm. every school had a jazz program. Now yeah. everything's codified yeah. and there are books yeah. on everything and, and there's so much pressure to conform, but yeah. being in a, in a musical family, I mean, it can be pretty cutthroat. I've talked to guys with fathers who, they were, I mean, uh, Andre Fisher from Shaka Khan, his dad was playing yeah. with Claire Fisher. You know, yeah, those yeah. guys were no jokes. And they right. had a high bar you had across. Yes. Yeah. Was that the same That's way cool. with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, my dad used to tell me um, when I was a kid, he used to say, uh, you know, when he, he, he could see I was getting serious about music, he, he would say, son, he says, uh, always listen to the best players. He says, that way you're going to learn something. They're going to show you the bar and you're going to learn something. And he would say, don't waste your time listening to people that don't know what they're doing. You won't <laughs> learn anything. <laughs> well, and on the flip side, what, what about the idea of, did he say to you, Caleb, go out and play with cats that are better than you? Um, uh, no, because, well, he left us before I'd got to that. Okay. Story. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that's a later, he's talking about the early on listening. Early on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did. So, I did. Yeah. So in terms of an education, I mean, what I, what I enjoyed and still remember were the incredible jam sessions that happened in our house. 
when some of these amazing musicians would come to town and my dad would cook for them, you know, and he would talk about this, please, please, please break this down. Well, I mean, I still remember as a kid, you know, five, six years old, Dizzy Gillespie bouncing me on his knee. Oh, I knew it. I Dizzy while he's the playing spirit. trumpet. Oh. You know, <laughs> and my dad knew these guys. He he yeah, knew these guys. Absolutely. He was great friends. Charlie Parker was one of his best friends. So was Django Reinhardt. Holy cow! So we had the cream of the crop. You know, players from Duke Ellington's orchestra coming through the house. And so there, I would listen, sit as a kid, listening to this amazing music being played in, in, in our living room, you know. Um, was he cooking, uh, like, uh, Jamaican food or what kind of food? Yeah, Caribbean, mixture of Caribbean, West African food. Oxtail, oxtail. Yeah, and some curry stuff. You oh, know. my God. So those guys, oh, yeah. you know. Jazz this food. <laughs> no, yes, too, too, Alan Toussaint. I'm not sure if you ever made it down to C. Saint Studios. Yes, I've worked with Alan Toussaint. Yes. So you did. know that he had a the, those cats used to. I mean, I've interviewed all the meters, and yeah, you know, he'd have a woman cooking during That's the day. Uh, right, you, right. Unbelievable. Oh man. yes, sir. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. When did you first get down to C. Saint? What were you down there for? I was down there in. Uh, gosh, it would be. I'm going to say 1980, 1780. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Cab K. Cab K. Yeah. Yeah, I really, this is so important because, you know, there's a folklore. Dizzy, Dizzy was like beyond genius, but bird Mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like someone like bird or art Taylor or, you know, Dexter. um, Yeah. Dolphy. I mean, yeah. these guys are folkloric now. Like they were, I mean, they were stars then, yeah. but I just wanted you to talk about like the, maybe I'm wrong, but just sort of the lack of sh- like almost, um, I don't want to say they were egoless, but can you talk about how the vibe that they used to give off? I mean, jazz was a blue collar music. It came mm-hmm. out of the blues. Mm-hmm. It was not this sort of, um, classicalized version of jazz that we have today. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, I mean, you could you could honestly say that the first fusion music was Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo. You know, that was in the mm-hmm. mid '40s. So there was a lot of yeah. a lot of the roots were in the music. But more to the point, these guys were scuffling too. Not necessarily maybe you know Dizzy and these guys, but some of them were junkies. Some of them oh, didn't. Oh, yeah. Some of them didn't get paid for sessions. I mean, Grant yeah. Green, yeah. they'd pay him in yeah. dope. I mean, can yeah. you? Can you talk, you talk about jazz food. What was your yeah. interpretation when you got old enough? What was your interpretation of the jazz life? Uh, it was very sad. Sad. Yeah, because I saw a lot of these guys were totally messed up, even though they were geniuses. They were musical geniuses. Absolutely, man. Um, they were prophets to culture through their art. Mm. It's the best way I can describe yeah, it. Yeah, I love – explain what that means. That is the one of the most poetic things I've heard in this, this calendar year. Well, I, I think that um, the artistry of jazz, especially back then, was to somehow um, bring forth some reflection of what was happening in culture. Totally. You know, so it, it, it's a prophetic music. 
you know. It was also the timing of it. Like you mm-hmm. had Mas- someone like Hugh Masekela, yeah, who was who was brought over by guys like Dizzy. Yeah, you know, pe- yeah. pe- you know, the diaspora was still yeah kind of intact. Right. I, I, you know, again, I wasn't even born. I mean, John Hendricks told me the singer. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you ever, you know, rest in peace. I mean, he said in in America, without the Sicilians, there'd be no jazz in America. You know, like yeah, they, right. they, you know, and, and so it's, you know, <laughs> With he, the clouds and everything. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. he, he he said they didn't use the N word. He goes, they didn't treat us like N. You know, they didn't treat right. us like they recognized our genius and they got paid yeah. for it. But you know, why? What did your dad? Was your dad heartbroken? Doesn't sound to me like he was. Was your dad messed up too, or did he just have? Well, he was. I mean, he had his problems with alcohol and stuff, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, he was he was saddened by it. Now, of course, back in those days, you know, there was still the the great there was you know what would you call it the racial divide, you know. I want to say this. I want to. This is. So, I'm so glad you brought that up, <laughs> John Mayall. Mm-hmm. In our interview, he said there was no color bar in England. The color bar has always been in the states. Yeah. Well, now talk yeah. about that because because he he he. I mean, I know that there's racism everywhere. Sure. But it was very defined here. Not right. so much in England. I don't know. Is that you think is that accurate for you? That's true. Yeah. That's that's true. And I think that's one of the reasons that the 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 jazz and blues artists love coming to England because we we basically rolled out the red carpet for them because we love their music. Totally. They were treated like the geniuses that they were. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very respected, you know. And then we'd hear stories of, you know, when they get back to America, they go do a gig and they got to go through the kitchen, you know, or they're not exactly. allowed to stay in certain kinds of hotels and et cetera, et cetera. So that wasn't that way in England. It's fascinating. I mean, you did choose. Talk a little bit about... Um, Explain to the audience, not just myself, why why you came to the States. The the, the, the interesting thing is that, like, many of the cats, even today, guys that are, you know, good friends of mine, like Ron Carter, you know, they live in the States, but their music and their living and livelihood is consumed in other parts of the world. But I'm just curious about, at that time, why you decided to come to the United States. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's very simple. Um... So I moved here in 1974. So in in uh, early 74, um, Hookfoot broke up because the music scene had changed in England. Huh. And they, it got into this whole uh, uh, glitter stuff. It was glam rock. Glam rock, yeah, the glitter But it stuff. was a lot more about like, like showmanship than, 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 than yeah. music. Yeah, I did. And, you know, wearing crazy makeup and just – and I was nothing to do with that at all. It's like was Bowie, like, like David Bowie kind of stuff? Or, I mean, what are we talking kind, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah T-Rex, yeah. Mark Bolan, all that kind of stuff. Sure, and sure. I couldn't stand it, you know. And, and to me, it was like the musicality of everything was just going downhill and everything was just based on – image right that, wow that's so, that is so insane that you that started in 74 yeah yeah I, i'm yeah. with you man go ahead so um i and and i was obviously you know was greatly influenced by american music so i was offered an opportunity to move to america which i did in 74 moved to chicago wow which was great because i wanted to get the chess studios i wanted to get 
you know, get to the to the roots. Oh my god, they, the, the music best bash, I'd always yeah. loved. You know, that's great. Yeah. So I got to become friends with, and still am with, with a, a great guitar player, Phil Upchurch. Um, dude, I did two epic interviews with that beautiful man. Please tell yeah. me he's still with us. He's still with us. Yeah, he's. Still Is he doing all right? I mean, I. I yep, yeah, he's doing great. Good. I love it, dude. I please that man. I interviewed Cash McCall. Rest mm -hmm. in peace. I mean, I mean that dude would talk after sessions yeah. about Phil Upchurch inviting the cats over to his house and yep. watching he would feed uh, rats to his snake <laughs> and have all the cats watch it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that and he was all now. This is before Caleb. Um, you before you came to Chicago, but he would go down Market yeah. Street and there'd be blind Dobro players, and there was just yeah. clubs everywhere. Yeah. I need I needed to know the first time you you set eyes on because you had knew Philip Church before you came over. Oh yeah, you knew, I knew who yeah. he was. Oh, when absolutely. was the first time you? I want need to hear about the the connection of of you and Up Church because I I mean that man is my hero. Yeah, well I was aware of him, you know, from recordings. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. The chess records thing, you know. And uh, see, and not only not only is Phil a great guitar player, but bass. He, oh, oh, he dude, and you know the Staples, all the Staples singers did all the bass on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I'm going to ask you a question, Caleb. Only two cats back in that time when the studio scene was cooking. There yeah. were two cats that could play lead electric bass. I'm sorry, lead electric guitar or electric uh -huh. bass on sessions. One yeah. was Upchurch. The other, do you know who it was? New York studio guy. Oh, I know you know who he is, but it may it may, it may be hard. He, Upchurch told me this in one of the inter, in one of our interviews. Who was that? I, um, he was in the band. He, he was in the band Stuff. Okay, it's got to be Eric Gale. You got it. Yeah, Upchurch and Gale, the only yeah. two two cats you'd see on records: electric yeah. bass or lead electric guitar. Yeah, I love Eric, Eric Gale's playing. I love nasty, it, you know? unbelievable. So that's the yeah. So that's the kind of stuff. But do you all feel like you like were were you camped out at Chess? Like when did you first hang with Church? Well, pretty much soon after I got there because I, I did a lot of studio work with him. You know, jingles, all kind of whoa, stuff. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's and just stop we, right. Oh, wait, hold on. You were doing like soulful strings albums. I need to know what albums you were on, man. Um, no, I did uh, an album with. Uh, in fact, Up Church and I were on an album with Willie Dixon. Oh dear! On yeah. uh, your, I don't even know if that's in your credits online, dude. Uh, it may not be. I mean, there's so. Was much he on bass and you were on guitar? Um, I believe so. Oh. And I believe he switched a couple of times, switched from bass to guitar. Yeah. This is this is so. I'm gonna so Eugene uh, was a Satterfield. Did you know him? Louis Satterfield. Louis Satterfield. Yeah, Thank I you. didn't know him. No, he was the Jamers. He was the Jamerson of Chicago. Of Chicago, you got right, it. That's right. right. Yeah. And then Morris my Jennings. Friend. I knew Morris oh Jennings. Oh my god. Drama. Yeah. Absolutely. What about what about Cle what about Big Cleveland Eaton? Cleveland Eaton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sweet. I, I hold on. I, I don't mean to keep jumping around here. How did you get into this? Was it that easy to were you to matric to matriculate right into this? Because I mean, New York studio scene was on lockdown. Like, how did you get in to the you chess? You know, it's funny. I got in there because a lot of those musicians, and back in, I don't know what it's like now, but back in those days, um, there was a lot of um, studio work of doing commercial jingles. Absolutely. 
And so a lot of those musicians would, would get booked on these jingles because that was a way of earning easy money. That was, you know. Suds and duds, you know, yeah, white beer commercial. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. We used to do McDonald's commercials. I and, love it. And Sears, you know, and all of that stuff and get residuals from it. So that was a way of earning a living. So that's where I would meet. That's where I met Upchurch in one of those jingle sessions. And, and Morris Jennings was playing on them as well, you know. And then we go, and there there was a great live music scene. So then we go down Rush Street, and they'd see them playing in clubs and what have you. And so and, what I wanted this is yeah. so classic. So you you were, um, were you working out of like I'm trying to think about what Cleveland used to talk about because he would have bases stashed in every studio. Which studios primarily <laughs> were you were you working in? Like you Gosh. like. Universal or uh... yeah, Universal was one of them. There was another one I can't remember the I can't remember the names of the studio. Well, what was the, to, what, that Willie? I know we no in the. Let's just go to the Willie Dixon album. Yeah, you, you can't. You talk about a. You know, I mean, you want to just talk about laying it out for what it is. I mean that there was no glam rock going on there. No, you know. No, 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 so no. can you talk about how that session worked? I mean, did everybody? Was there any baffles in there? I mean, how did that work? That was, the drummer session, a, was the drummer in a booth or not? Um, I think he was. All I can remember of that, that session, that album was not done at Chess Records. That was done in an eight-track studio in the basement of a drugstore. Get out of here. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? Oh, no. It was oh, a classic situation. Oh, where... I need to hear. This is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it was... Um, Willie Dixon and his band, and they drove up fresh off the Chitlin circuit in their mohair suits and everything, got off the bus, <laughs> piled into the studio. Uh, Pine Top Perkins was the piano player. My hero. Unbelievable yeah. you're dropping yeah. these names right oh, now. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. And um, and then myself and Phil Upchurch were hired to just kind of augment the whole thing. The producer was some young white kid who was trying to get Willie's music to cross over into the white audience radio play. And wow. he was, he was trying to, I mean, it was crazy. He was trying to get Willie to change his, some of the lyrics to his tunes. And there was some arguments went down. It was hilarious. It was like Cheech and Chong. <laughs> And so he was, they, he was trying to he was trying to whitewash some of the lyrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make it more palatable, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so Willie's going, I ain't changing no effing this, that, and the other. This is this is how it is. Okay, let's go. One, two, three. You know. And while all this is going, I I look over at the piano player, Pine Top Perkins. He's sitting there eating some peanuts, waiting. Uh, for <laughs> I mean, it was just. Just crazy. He wasn't bothered at all. He was just having Not a at snack. All. Not at all. He knew exactly what was going down. Do yeah. we, please, please tell me you remember the name of the album. I honestly don't. I, I don't remember. Because I am really having a hard time finding. I mean, there's the only thing that came out in 74 for him was a, a live album, which that's, if this wasn't live. No, no, no. That is on. But, yeah. Yeah, but you're, you have, did you actually at one time have your hands on a pressing of it or do you, do you have a, a copy of the record? I don't know. I never got a press. I left Chicago, I think before it was released. So yeah. ultimately, um, because were you, in, did you, did you play in any outfits 
while you were, I mean, Chicago was still, as most cities were in this country in the seventies, driven by the club scene. Did you, did you have yeah. a, a band of your, of, or a band you were in in Chicago? I was in a band. Yeah. I was back in a guy, a guy called Bill Quaitman. Yes. Was, I've seen his, his records were, he was, he was gigging in Chicago. Yeah. He was, he's from Chicago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So how and so was he on down on the south side or old town or where was he playing? Uh, no, in northwest side, northwest. And how would you describe ultimately like that record? I've seen that. That was how did that? How did he become a commercial success? Um, he got signed to CBS through Clive Davis back in those days, and he was you know. Um, an up and coming, you know, singer songwriter guy. Uh -huh. Just going back for a second, coming, I want you to talk to younger cats. I remember the great drummer and Dugu Chancellor. I'm not sure if you ever crossed paths. Oh yeah. Him. Leon Chancellor. Yeah. And my Dugu, my yeah. beautiful cat. And he, um, he was, you know, before he passed, he was working at, uh, as a professor at USC. And he said that, um, one of the problems today with kids that are coming into the academy to get mm -hmm. degrees, they might be brilliant and they might be coming in with full rides and, you know, mm -hmm. but he goes, I don't see him playing with the guys with the rubber bands around their horns enough, you know, the, the, the street scholars, so to speak. And, and mm -hmm. what I wanted you to talk about, one of the magical things about this period of time that we're talking about going back to the John Lee Hooker period, the Jimi yeah. Hendrix period, yeah. The Beatles period. I don't mm -hmm. want to talk about other guys, but there were, I want you to talk about how you remained open to skiffle players, guys who just were natural, had their own fluid style. There was no training involved. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because, because what Nduga was saying is it's now it's about how big a bag of, t you always need to have repertoire. I'm not saying that, yeah. but now yeah. it's about like chops and facility and technique and yet mm -hmm. before it was more about, well, what's your story to tell? And a lot of those cats yeah. in England, they came from hard scrabble existences. Robbie Robertson and the band did yeah. too. Yeah. And, and I just want you to talk to younger cats about staying open to the idea of the street scholar, that not everything needs to be so polished and so beautiful and so perfect. That right. the idea, especially in, again, it's genre related, but like, did you, you did, how did you not, how did you learn to keep an open heart to all music and not look down on cats that were essentially skiffle players? Boy, that's a good question. And maybe you did look down on them. I don't know, but I don't no, think you did. I know you didn't. No, I didn't. No, no. Um, I was always interested in, in folk music. Yeah. Acoustic summer. I play acoustic, a lot of acoustic guitar as well, you know, as I did on, on the Elton John stuff. So I was always um, open to that. I think the emphasis on uh, technique and, and perfection has a lot to do with, it's what I call this seduction of technology. And also, I want to be clear, visual technology. If there's so much yeah. visual material. Before you guys were listening, your ears were huge. There was not, the visual right. stuff had not taken over. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So so now everything has to be packaged. You know, we talk about branding. Yep. That mm -hmm. was not a concept back then. That wasn't even on the radar, you know. 
So it seems like a dream, dude. It doesn't seem real. <laughs> yeah. So everything is is that that's what media, you know, the advancement or the so-called advancement of media has done to us, has done to the music, you know. And I think from um well, let me ask you something like, like, cause like that's, you're nailing it. It's like, the idea is someone sees them. They say, Oh, they're not playing it the right way. They see people mm -hmm. see the way. And, and someone could have an, or Jimi Hendrix played the guitar upside down. Sure, but, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, like anything unorthodox or not yeah. based on what is supposed, there's no right. What's this Caleb talk about your idea that, you know, there is no right way. I mean, yes, you want to play a gig. You want to do yeah. well, you want to get invited back. But there's more that I just, you know, to me, that was the magic of I don't care what yeah. genre of music it was. But when you were sure. coming up, everybody had the freedom to be themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it goes back to this thing where, where, where music, historically, music reflects culture. Right. And not only the music, but also the production of music. It reflects culture. So here's what I mean. When I first started playing culture, it was a monoral culture. It was mono. Right. I mean, I still remember, I'm old enough to remember when stereo first came out. Right. Right. You see what I'm saying? So everything was mono, you know. So then as culture progressed, you know, then we had, you know, sending people to the moon and then there's explosion in scientific technology and the recording arts and sciences, you know? So when I first started recording, four track was the state of the art. That was as far as you could go. So the early Beatles records with four track mixed down to mono, boom, that's it, you know? So very simple, limited, very minimal overdubs, no, you know, no bells and whistles. But then all of a sudden we get to eight track and then we get to 16 track, which means you can add more stuff. And while that's going on, culture itself is accelerating. It's becoming more complex. And more so, layering, more ability. Like, just, I, I, I totally get it, man. You're, so you got supersonic travel. People can travel faster. More people can go to more places. There's more noise in the world. And that's <laughs> getting reflected in music. So now we're getting everything, but the kitchen sink is thrown into a musical production. That is absolutely profound. Um, yeah. You know, uh, now you can do anything. Now with now you can you can make music sound perfect. No, but I also the idea but is unfortunately that, it won't feel perfect. That's that's, <laughs> that's right, and that and, and that that all comes down to. Um, well, also just the idea that for a period of time <clears throat> in this country too, <laughs> I remember talking to doing a couple of interviews with John Densmore and, um, Jack Holtzman from Electra, that was a boutique label. And a yeah, lot of the yeah, guys yeah, yeah. like, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, the, 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 the bean counters were like, well, we don't know what these guys are doing, but right. they're making us money. So we're going to leave them alone. There, there was this short period of time. And then all of a sudden the bean counters got involved with the music making. Yeah, yeah, and that was a big. You want to talk about branding, sure, and the efficiency mm -hmm. model. Did yeah. you actually? I, you know, I, I, I just, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, can you talk about how um, God 
saved your life if in fact that happened and what i mean by that is like um a lot of people um i've talked to a lot of cats who um you know dealing with all different types of issues and things like that but they they walked away from music uh Mm -hmm. or they were I, i guess here's the question can you just talk about the the time in your life when you surrendered to god and ultimately how you try to convey the strongest messages of spirit without getting shrouded in dogma. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, thanks for asking the question. Absolutely, man. Yeah. No, uh, for me, it was, it happened. And this, this, you know, my uh, documentary that's about to be released, it's called louder than rock. And um, what happened to me was literally hearing God speak to me in a hotel room in 1978 on my 30th birthday when I was touring with Hall and & Oates. And at that time, I was pretty depressed about all kinds of things. And, um, and I, was, I was searching for answers to this life, you know, because uh. I've become very successful in my field, had everything the world can, ha- you know, can offer you, you know, and um, none of it could fix my internal condition which was fueled with a lot of anger towards my father and all kinds of things you know and uh, so one day I, I'm sat in this hotel room and after after a birthday party that the band threw for me and uh, in the wee hours of the morning they left my room and I'm sat there just chilling out and I hear this voice suddenly speak to me, and it was it was loud enough for me to to think that somebody had walked into my room. And I looked around, and there was nobody there. And the voice just said to me, "Caleb, from this point on, your life is going to be completely different, and nothing's going to be the same for you ever again." And in a split second, I'm no longer high on all the dope and everything. We've been on the road for six months, and I sat there and in my limited understanding, all I knew was that I had been spoken to. I just didn't know by whom. So I made a promise to myself. I said, one day I'm going to find out who that voice belongs to. So you roll the clock on three and a half years. And um, I meet uh, this dear friend, Chester Thompson, used to be a drummer with Weather Report and Genesis. God, I cannot believe you just dropped his name, dude. Oh, yeah. I, did, I, I interviewed my, my the other shed, the, 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 the pedal kicker from Tower of Power, you know, the organ player. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I did, I've been Chester Thompson. You met Chester. Go ahead. The other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and Chester was putting a jazz group together and he invited me to join his band. I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we were doing some gigs around town here and um, – and we would rehearse in his studio at his house. And Chester had told me that him and his wife were Christians and that they go to church. I thought, yeah, that's good for you. But there was something different about Chester because we're, we're like the same age. I'm yeah. actually a month older than Chester. We're in the same line of work, but he's not crazy like everybody else. <laughs> there right, was, right, right, there right. was something different about him yeah. and his wife. You know, they were at peace. They had this solidity about their lives, you know, and I thought, I used to think to myself, this guy and his wife, they've got something. They've gotten hold of something. And whatever it is, I want it. 
I need it. And it cut a long story short, on Easter Day 1982, he invited me to go to church with him. So I said, okay, I'll go to church. And while we were sat in the church, the same voice that I heard in the hotel room that I'd, I promised myself one day I'd find out who that belonged to speaks to me right there in the church and tells me, Caleb, it's time for you to come home to me today because I have a new life for you. And that's when the light bulb went on and I knew that that voice belonged to Jesus. And that's when I said, to, said yes to Jesus, Easter day, 1972. I mean, this, is why, this is why I do my show, man. The right. stories like that. Yeah. That is so, so you were, even when you heard mm -hmm. Jesus, you heard his, the voice in the hotel room, 78. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you were trying, <clears throat> did you try to cultivate your, your true nature, as we say, as a Taoism? Like, did you try to, did you try to, what I'm saying is like, to me, if you, if you were earnestly trying to search for mm -hmm. that voice, mm -hmm. ultimately that was the intersection of how Chester came into your life. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure out, like, in that two and a half year period, did you try to do better? Did you try to no, move? I was, yeah. I was just trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Stay alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because my life was falling apart at that time, you know. So uh, on all kinds of just about every level, you know, it was just falling apart. So, yeah, I was just in survival mode, you know. The, so can you just was, talk about, I want you to, yeah. this is so important because mm -hmm. uh, for, and maybe it goes beyond words, but what was noticeable about the stillness of Chester and his wife? Well, I mean, that was it. You know, it was like everybody else that I was involved with in in the music industry was shoving tons of coke up their nose and was you know high as a was just just so prevalent so yeah random and just all over the place you know i was doing studio work and getting paid in dope really for some of these guys yeah yeah but you were part of the union they they were they... oh yeah oh yeah 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 absolutely the studio the un the, the musicians union was paying you a dope not the musicians union these would be you know Private, this is off, off the doing books. stuff off the under books. the table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There was a bunch of us. Doing it was that. just impossible to avoid that stuff. Uh, sure. Or it was just right in your face all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And when you saw Chester, it I wasn't thought, just so bright. It wasn't just that he was a sober per cat. He had yeah. a stillness. There was a absolutely. stillness. Absolutely. He was at peace with himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was very different. You want to talk about how? Uh, just you, you want to preview this uh, this doc that's coming up a little bit. What what, what do people have? I mean, this is Caleb Quay. I mean, this is like uh, I'll be honest. I, I I turned over a Sean Phillips record at work. Yeah, yeah. And I saw your name, and I'm like, wait, we're friends on Facebook. I'm gonna I'm gonna do an interview with this cat, and then I, uh, I started doing uh, the background. I'm like, holy cow, yeah, man! Yeah, and it's just sure. another one of these beautiful people in this milieu. I mean, I, the way I look at at, at society now even though oh this is what i was going to say one of the reasons i just feel like i don't know if younger cats really have a real story to tell anymore you know mm -hmm. and i think that's part of the issue with uh you know singer songwriters that you had a lot of people who just even coming out of the folk scene mm -hmm. were scuffling yeah. they, they, it was the, it's hard to play the blues when you grow up in suburbia 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's an yeah. authenticity thing, but I do feel yeah. that as road dogs in the 20, not that you're a road dog, you did that in your mm-hmm. career, but in the 21st century, live spiritual music is one of the only last to me is one of is, is salvation. I, I, I don't, I, and I don't, because I see us sort of, um, I just wonder how you look at this time that we're in as a reflection of society and mm-hmm. how important original spiritual collective music is to the people. Yeah. 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 It's, that's a good question. It's important. And, um, cause the world is a mess now. It's a mess, man. Big time. You, you know. talked about all the super, the super speed of everything. We're yeah, in like yeah. hyper speed now. Oh, absolutely. You know, and so, but you know, we've been given a book called the Bible that tells the truth. And um, that's what, you know, I had to come to terms with. And I'm so glad that I did, you know, um, for me as a Christian, you know, Jesus made a radical statement. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life, you know, and he proved it by being raised from the dead, you know, and it's, it's a heart issue. It's a heart faith issue. It's not, it's nothing to do with whether or not you go to church. Totally. It's not about what the show, it's not about showing it, right? No, it's about living it. It's about living it. Right. Right. Living your, your faith. That, why, why has there been such a, uh, from your point of view, Bill mm-hmm. Maxwell. Do you know Bill, by the way? I know Bill very well. Absolutely. Bill is a dear friend of mine. Good, good, is, is yeah, dear, yeah. And so is Abe Laboriel. And yeah, Pat, yeah, Hadley yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. and like, and like, when Bill talked about becoming a Christian, it, it was like the most beautiful, like it was like service to mankind. It was, the, yeah. it was this vibe of living your faith. Yeah. What, what it. do, why, what would you say to people who have become completely brainwashed and not non-thinking like not thinking any longer about truth or mm-hmm. living the faith mm-hmm. and just sort of going groupthink is what i'm talking about how yeah. can you stay how can you still have an individual mindset and be a good christian Boy. because there's a lot of sheep out there man mm-hmm. i don't know what's going on right now because whatever the values that are in the bible and i'm not well versed they yeah. certainly aren't towards certain political leaders these days right right and i don't understand why millions of quote-unquote christian how do you break away how do you still maintain the faith and being good Mm -hmm. being good christian and Mm -hmm. yet being independent minded that's a good question you know i think if we're talking about musicians i think one thing is to realize if you are a really gifted musician is to recognize that the gift didn't come from you. It was given to you you by God. And so when you, when you realize that, then that changes everything because that causes you to turn to God and it changes your, um, your approach to music. You are so, merely you are merely a vessel or a conduit for information right. coming through you from the heavens. I that's am with you a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And so and so then you have to look at why did God give you this gift? Because he wanted you to use it to bless people. And what you're saying on a bigger sta- scale is that some cats who claim to be faithful, I don't care what religion it is, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They believe they are fully responsible for the information coming through them, and mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of ego and a lot of resentment comes com- comes yeah. into it because they're not they're not surrendering to the fact that they're only partially responsible for for letting right. the information come through them. Right. Right. Wow. Did you did you did that light come on? I mean, you played a lot of heavy music. Yeah. Did that recognition and surrender only occur after? You met Chester and received. Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So before that, you were really kind of like, "It's about me, baby." I got sure. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, very competitive and all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, in fact, for me, after I, after I received Christ, there was a period where where I actually stopped playing, and it was like God spoke to me and He said, "I want you to put that instrument, which was my guitar." Right. He said, "I want you to put that away." And I want you to learn a new instrument. It's called the Bible. So I put the guitar away. Didn't touch it for about six months. Shoved it under the bed. And just got into reading the Bible. And that changed my mind about a whole lot of things. Do you do... Um, it reset the compass. So yeah, well, I can feel your your grace even through the, through the Zoom. Um, mm-hmm. You find yourself with, do you have a meditation practice of sorts on a daily basis, uh, Christian yeah, meditation? We, well, yeah, we call it doing devotions. It's basically reading the word of God and then, yeah. listening, and then listening, listening to the spirit, you know, listening. Does to that the... voice ever come back and visit you again or is it? Has oh, that... yeah, many times. Oh, really? Oh, wow. oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Caleb Quay, I would love to do set two with you down in, in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure when the doc's coming out. I just feel like we have more to get to. And it's coming love... out this Friday. This get fr- out of here. This Friday, April the 28th. Where can people find it? Is, you know what? The... On YouTube. I'll tell you what. I've got you on um, Facebook. Uh, yeah. Send me some links. I'll send you some links. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And uh, what an honor and uh, blessing to connect with you, man. It's such a uh, I got to be honest. I got to. I, I really hope that that Willie Dixon album actually got pressed. <laughs> <laughs> but man, I, and I look forward to come when I get out there. Looking forward to connecting with you in person, man. It's okay. Really, an honor to connect with you, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. All right. Bless you, brother. Be good. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.